All right, so it's the uh, so crazy that it's the 666th episode of Talk is Jericho, um, which is you know very monumental in a lot of ways and also very freaking evil in a lot of ways as well. And somebody was like, "Ah, oh, man, you you should do something evil for this, like something kind of devilish or whatever." Now, coincidentally, Kevin Smith and I were talking about doing a watch along for this movie. Obviously, everyone knows what it is. We should probably announce it, right? Yeah, but by the time they're watching this or listening to it, like it's probably in the description, right? You're not going to bury yeah. the lead. Yeah, they know what it I is. Always, so it's, it- I, I do that on podcasts too, where I'm like, I bring on a guest and I do a long intro for them as if it's a mystery, as if people <laughs> don't know who the guest is. But meanwhile, like right in the title of the podcast, it usually says it who says, the guest is. right? It says who it is. So, so they know gaming- at this point. Yeah, they know. It's Damien Omen 2, which is, of course, the sequel to, to the famous uh, uh, 1976 movie. And we had discussed doing this because we've had two very successful watch-alongs. We did uh, Bad News Bears and Pulp Fiction. And then somehow we stumbled on to Omen 2, and we're both like, I love that movie. A mutual affection for this unsung horror classic. When When it came out back in the day was considered to be a quick cash grab because The Omen had done well. Uh, It doesn't really have any crossover performances other than Leo McKern as uh, Bugenhagen. Like, think about it. Like, all you know, both parents, spoilers, if you haven't seen the first Omen, which is just called The Omen, Gregory Peck was the adopted dad. Lee, uh, who was it? Was it Lee Remick was the adopted mom? Lee Remick, yeah. Not to be confused with Lee Grant. They, the they stuck to a theme. You'll one. you'll they notice did. when they cast Damien Omen 2, they were really like, let's not go far from the mold. So in a world where they had, um, what was his name? Um, who played his dad? Uh, Gregory Peck. Gregory Peck. Then they were like, well, who's Gregory Peckish for a- Damien Omen 2? And they go, oh, Bill Holden, man. Sunset Boulevard. This guy's a classic. Let's get Bill Holden. And then when it came to the wife, they were like, We'll swap a Lee for a Lee. Let's do it. Uh, Lee Lee Grant, who plays the mom in Damien Omen 2, was one of the blacklisted actresses of her era. Really? Yeah, she's got like crazy history. When we get in the movie, we'll get into it. But in any event, so this movie, when it came out, like the boy who played the Omen in the original, they didn't use him because this story jumps ahead in time. So none of the actors return. It's a weird example of making a sequel where what usually drives the sequel is like, we love these people who play these characters. And instead they kind of tell the next chapter in the story without bringing any of the cast elements that made you like the first one. And and so Damien is now played by a completely different actor at this point. The only actor both movies share is Bugenhagen, the old priest, uh, you know, who's like, these are the, the, the magenti daggers and shit like that. Yeah, he's the kind of the archaeologist that's searching for the uh, weapons that can kill the Antichrist. Was it the the, da- the daggers of Megiddo or something? Megiddo, like that? which yes. of course is a part of Armageddon, Megiddo. Very, very well done. But another thing, too, is you mentioned uh, Gregory Peck. He actually, uh, William Holden, turned down the role of playing Robert Thorne. This is Richard Thorne. So, yeah, he turned down the role originally. So, originally, to... they went to Bill Holden for The Omen? Yes. He didn't want to be in a movie about, about a devil. Um, Dick Donner made The Omen. So, the same guy who brought us Superman mm-hmm. and the, the entire Lethal Weapon franchise mm-hmm. um, and The Goonies, he made the first Omen. 
The second omen was not Dick Donner. Um, just like, like, I, I think it was because he actually elected to go make Superman. Superman he had gotten the yeah. call from the Salkins and they were like, how would you like to do Superman? So he left. I, I don't know if he was slated to do Omen 2, but there was no discussion. He was already on to something else. Now, me, if I had done the Omen and it was the success that it was, you better believe I'd be on Omen 28 right now, man. Like how <laughs> Dick Donner had the kind of uh, composure to be like, I'm going to leave a sure thing for a risky thing. And then that risky thing, of course, as we all know, paid off. So it's it's strange. Like none of the same elements are in play. Imagine Marvel making a sequel that had no tie-in to any of the previous movies. They replaced the entire cast. It's just such a weird way to do it. And I, I can't think of many examples where this happens. Like in, in uh, Halloween 2 to Halloween 3 season of The Witch, they completely replaced not just the cast, but the characters. So it's like those two movies as sequels don't even really resemble one another. This is another chapter in what they decided was like, oh shit, this is the Thorn saga. We're going to follow Damien throughout his life. So it was kind of a bold choice to make a teenage Damien. Like the first one worked because we all know the devil kid, but I guess somewhere in 20th Century Fox or, or Harvey Bernard or whoever produced the movie, they were like, you know what? Like, Let's take it up a notch. Let's see if we've shown the devil as a as a child. Let's show him as a teenager. And I guess that was the thought process. Well, they also think too. Actually, knowing this movie as well as I have, the guy who wrote the first screenplay, you probably know this, who David Seltzer. Mm -hmm. He didn't do the second one because he said he doesn't do sequels. So I think what happened is they had this chain chain of command with the screenplay writer didn't want to do it. And then uh, uh, I think then the producer wrote the story himself. And then Donner probably went, you know what? The magic of seltzer has gone. I'm not going to do this. And I think it all kind of crumpled down from there, which is probably why. Because Seltzer said, I remember he said if he, if he was going to do a sequel, it would have taken place like right as Robert Thorne dies. The next day is when the sequel picks up. Obviously, we've jumped ahead 10 years to where he's a teenager now. So maybe that's where... There was some issues or I don't know. I think it was ab absolutely like it's one of the things that uh, bound this sequel to me. Why I, I think of it so affectionately was because, number one, they were doing another omen. And as a Catholic kid, movies about the devil were everything. So here they were doing a second omen, moving the story forward. And also it was like why the, when this came out, I was not even the same age as Damien is in the movie. So on mm -hmm. to some degree for me, it was not aspirational. Like I want to be like Damien, but these are like younger kids like to watch older kids. So this movie hit a sweet spot where I was like, Oh, I like watching movies, but I don't want to watch baby movies. I want to watch a movie about this teenager. Who's also the devil. Um, mm -hmm. I always remember this movie so affectionately too, because where were we? We were in Florida. Like my, Father worked at the post office, as I've said many times. And so he didn't like have a, he hated his job. And, and the one thing he always asked my mom to do, he's like, look, I'll do this and stuff. I'll pay for everything and raise, you raise the kids and whatnot. But like, I need to go on vacation once a year. And it was generally around Easter time. So my mom would learn how to stretch a buck and we'd go to places and generally we'd drive and stuff. One time we drove down to Florida and we were down in Marathon, Florida when this movie came out and I, I was like disconnected from the world. And my mom was never going to let me see this movie anyway. 
Um, I would have had to have seen it with my cousin Johnny and my aunt Judy or something like that. But I was in a, like a notion store and on this, they had a, a rack full of pocket novels and stuff. And there was the novelization. Yes. Damien Omen two, which also, if you remember, had the very metal picture of that one lady getting her eyes pecked out, man. And right. I, I studied that book in that store for so long, man, and begged my mother to buy it. And she's like, no. And I was like, but it has pictures, please. <laughs> like they had a tie in novelization, man. Like this they movie used to was do no that joke. all the time. They used to do that all the time with movies, the tie in novelization. And like you said, the movie was no joke because the Omen was so huge. Omen, which was only two years prior, was almost uh, as as iconic and as influential at that time frame as Jaws was. You know, Jaws was the shark in the water. And then there's this concept of the Antichrist, which everybody at that time frame had grown up with some sort of church in, shall we say. And so they knew the concept of the Antichrist. Now, I grew up uh, uh, Ukrainian Catholic, which like same as you, Catholic. Catholic Church is like scarier than, than the devil in a lot of ways. But when you hear that word Antichrist, I remember this, specifically remember this. My parents went and saw The Omen at a theater. So I was probably, if it was in 76, I was five. If it was 77, I was six, whenever. And they came back home and I was sleeping. You know, babysitter puts you to sleep, parents come home. And I woke up with my mom looking through my hair. Ah! She was, <laughs> this is true. This is not a joke. She was checking to see if she could find the, the 666 on my head because that's what Damien Thorne has. And we see it in this movie, too. So I was doomed from the start to be a fan of these movies. Did she believe in <laughs> Jaws as well? Like, like, did she just believe in all the movies? <laughs> mm-hmm. Don't go swimming after dark in the swimming pool. You don't know what's in there. <laughs> um, how sweet, man. But also, it's a testimony to who you were as a child that she even thought to look <laughs> Like, this kid's pretty bad. Maybe he is the I devil. Was very devious. <laughs> um, let's yeah. get a rolling, man, and, and dive okay. in, and we'll chit-chat all throughout, because Lord knows we'll have tons to say. But this was a, a very passionate choice of ours, and we did have a discussion at one point about, like, we did. is this two deep cuts? Like, is anyone really going to care? Like, especially because we've done uh, grains and greens, greens and grains before, and, like, Pulp Fiction had more views than like say bad news bears, but bad news bears is very dear to our hearts. So we have this discussion about like, well, maybe Damien Omen two is one of those situations where it's like too close to our hearts and nobody's going to give a shit, but it being the beauty of episode six, 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 like makes it absolute perfection. So I hope it gets out there in the world because this is a wonderful movie in my recollection. It may be ruined as we watch it tonight, but I doubt it. Like it, it's still like when I think of it, it reminds me of a happy childhood. And in, as far as sequels go, really n- like pretty damn good, man. Like I think honestly, all these Omen movies up to three, I thought they were totally like I bought into the mythology. Mm-hmm. I thought they did a great job. Like the last one, you know, they kind of said, you know, just Damien versus Jesus at the very, very end. But like as a Catholic kid, I was like, it can end no other way. Like, so I, I love these movies. I remember they did a four as a TV movie. Yeah. And that's where they kind of lost me and stuff. With, well, because they, they went with the old, you know, remake of Bad News Bears where they turned Damien into a girl, like Damiana. And, and, like, and I think she was meant to be like his daughter, right? Like it was just like she was a thorn. She was the daughter of the, the woman that he impregnated in Omen 3. Yes. Right. Which I remember 
in Omen 3, I was like, did they have normal sex? Because my, my memory of that movie is when he, like, flips her over. Like, do you remember that? Well, I do remember, and I'll tell you the story about that, because you talk about how much this movie means to us, and we'll start it in a second. But uh, I was really connected to this movie because when I grew up in Winnipeg, and I'm sure wherever you grew up, uh, in Jersey, I can't remember the exact city, but there's you'd have two or three channels on a TV. That's it. Click one, tick, click one. And they Absolutely. would show a movie, and then they would replay it a few times. So, And they would show like a five-minute clip of this movie uh, as a commercial. And Omen 2, in about 1980, 81, they had a run, and they showed it like six times within a month. And I got super into it because, like you said, these guys are kind of the same age as I am because now I'm older. I'm 11 or 12, 10, whatever. So when Omen 3 came out, uh, my grandfather was watching me at the time because my parents went away. So he, he, wanted, he said, you want to go to the movies? I said, yeah, I want to go see this movie called Omen 3. So he taught me how to take the bus. You know, you put the coin in the slot and you go sit in the back and you hold on to the thing. The first time I ever took a bus. And we went downtown Winnipeg and went and watched Omen 3, The Final Conflict. Wait, with your and grandfather? With my grandfather. I took him <laughs> <laughs> to see it. So we watched this movie. <laughs> Did he know what he was in for? No. He was just like, I was like, I really want to see this movie, Grandfather. <laughs> Grandpa. And so we went. Grandfather? Who are you, fucking Heidi? You're like, Grandfather, <laughs> Grandfather, <laughs> take me to the Omen picture. <laughs> please take me to see the final conflict. Um, so we, we go. Uh, Grandpa takes me downtown and we go to it. And the opening scene, of course, is when the, the this is for Omen 3. It's not a spoiler for 2. The ambassador sets up a, a shotgun and he shoots himself in the face and his head explodes because of what's coming. You know, the end of the world is coming and we right. watch it. And all the monks die and everyone dies. And it's, you know, it doesn't hold up like two and one do. I'll tell you that. Right. And at the end of it, my grandfather goes, well, not a lot of people survived that piece of shit. Did they? <laughs> <laughs> How awkward though, to be sitting next to your grandkid when Damien Thorne flips the woman over because <laughs> he's the devil. So he can only have, he can't make love. He has to have anal sex. That was such a freaky notion when I was a kid. Cause like I was still piecing sex together, but I'm like, that's as evil as it gets, man. Like <laughs> he put it, himself someplace where he don't belong because he's the devil. <laughs> this movie was like so fundamentally Christian at its heart they could have used it. Religious communities could have been like, we back 100% what's going on in this movie. But instead, right. you know, I don't know if it was the same with you, but my church was like, you can't watch those movies. You can't mm -hmm. watch The Omen. You can't watch The Exorcist. Like, that's glamorizing the devil. Like, that's... Mm -hmm. And so, seeing these movies also had the secret thrill of like, I'm, I'm going against the church. <laughs> like, right. I'm an altar boy and I'm watching this movie about this kid who's learning he's the devil. Like, and you, you know, there are nice parallels, like in the movie we're about to watch when Damien discovers he's the devil, like to the Christ story. Like it's all of it just felt just a sacrosanct enough to sit there and enjoy it beyond what was being given as the entertainment itself. Maybe somebody who just watches movies watches this movie and goes like, well, on a three-act structure, it's very basic and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. But you have to tie in. When we first saw this movie, it was like getting away with something. Oh, yeah. It was taboo in a lot of ways, right? It was taboo. And and you'll see it's incredibly tame. But that being said, there is some batshit stuff in this movie. 
I saw Damien's face on the wall. William Holden. Where's Damien? Lee Grant. Damien, Omen 2, the first time was only a warning. Oh yeah, this is this is nuts, man. They they uh, well, let's start it off here. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of stuff in here to discuss, and this is why it's a classic for both you and I. Classic. Whenever I see that logo, what am I thinking? Star Wars, of course. 20th Century Fox, and now it can exist again. Now they could do that logo again. For a while, Star Wars couldn't. It would have to be Disney, but now Disney owns 20th Century Fox. So if they want to use that logo again, they're back at it. Mace Newfield Feld, the same guy who gave us. Oh, by the way, start the show right now. If you, if you guys are watching along, we're starting it. So start it, and here we go. So we'll go tell you the name right now on screen is Damian Omen Two. The title just literally came up. Start there. Okay. Mace Newfeld. He did the Hunt for Red October movies, all the Jack Ryan movies. He did those wow. as well. This guy, Leo McKern, he's the yeah. only returning character from the previous movie, as we said before, <laughs> Bugenhagen. He's also an actor who was in one of my favorite movies of all time, A Man for All Seasons. He played Cromwell, uh, the guy who ultimately damns Sir Thomas More. Wonderful actor with a very distinctive look. And in this era... Like the 60s, 70s, 80s, you saw him in a lot of flicks. This has a pretty great cast. I mean, there's a lot of people in here that have a lot of substance to them. Like you mentioned, William Holden, Lee, Lee Grant won a freaking Oscar, for gosh sake. So this was not some kind of a B movie, even if you watch it now and think, oh, that's just schlock. This was a big budget uh, Hollywood. Jerry Goldsmith, I mean, that's one of the greatest film composers of all time. Bill Butler shot Jaws. Jeez, so, man. you know, they, they've got a pedigree on this movie. This was not a cheapie. It was 20th Century Fox. The Omen made them a lot of money. So they decided to go right back, man. And and uh, they got this guy who's the director whose name is coming up. Uh, What's his name? Don Taylor. Don now, Taylor. He's Don Taylor goes back like years before this movie. Not only did he make some relevant movies to us in the 70s, Don Taylor is the guy who directed escape from the planet of the apes arguably one of the mm. greatest planet of the apes movies ever made the one where they come to the present he directed oh, this right, movie right, right. he also directed remember the island of dr moreau with burke lancaster yeah he directed that movie but going well, here's the further back dude remember the tom sawyer musical with the sherman brothers uh, songs and stuff <laughs> he directed yeah. that going even further back he directed, I think it was like Stalag 17, where he worked with Bill Holden. So, like, this guy had been around for a while, man. And they were like, look, we, you know, this kid who directed the first movie, he's not coming back. We feel like you're the man for it. He had already done sequels in the past. But, but let me tell you something. Let me jump in here. Go he was it. not the first director on this film. <gasps> he's the a replacement. First, he was repl they had a guy called Mike Hodges. I don't know if you know that name or not. I'm sure we could find him if we want to. But he started the, the picture. They said uh, the producers said he was moving too slow. So they fired him and replaced him with Don Taylor, who had a reputation for fil finishing films on time and under budget. So there you go. Not a bad rep to have, man. People know you in yeah. the business for being expedient and stuff. And that means they'll always turn to you and stuff. Now, some people, I'm sure... Cindy East would be like, oh, well, the best thing you could say about him is he gets the job done. 
Hey, man, this movie, <laughs> I remember better than most movies I've seen in my life that, you know, were considered quality or something like that. Like sometimes good workmanlike uh, performances across the boards behind and in front of the camera produce a classic whether they're trying to or not. This is a damn good movie. And what they're doing in this scene right here is almost retelling the story of the omen. And now he's saying right. that uh, introducing a new concept about Yagel's wall. And he said, essentially, in the first movie, they had these daggers. The only things on earth that could kill uh, Damien Thorne. Uh, uh, his Antichrist. dad had him. The Antichrist. His dad had him. And then when he was shot, what happened to those knives? Mm -hmm. Right. The, then they the apparently were... Uh, because Bugenhagen was the guy who f first excavated them. I believe they're in uh, Jerusalem or somewhere around there. And also, too, guys, when you're watching, turn on the subtitles. That's what uh, that's what we have here, so we kind of know what's going on. But Bugenhagen uh, ex excavated the daggers of Megiddo. He has them hidden, I believe, in the museum in Chicago, which we'll see coming up. So what these guys are doing right now is they're going to find Yigal's wall. We're on Yigal's wall is a painting a prophecy of, of sorts a prophecy right a prophecy a prophet saw the antichrist and painted a picture of his face and as soon as he finished painting the picture he went completely insane wow there's a crow not coincidental right or raven i believe that's supposed to be raven, raven right gotcha, ravens gotcha. are the big thing here so that's that's a, that's wonderful setup right there and right they're getting it done in the opening minutes we haven't even met the main cast in fact, you're going to see no. these two guys, and spoilers, don't enjoy them too much, you know, because <laughs> the story's going to move on. So they look at how long they're taking to set up their story. Like, I can't think of a modern sequel that would do, like, the first 15 minutes don't even involve your main cast. Um, but it's all crucial information because what this franchise was sold on was not star power. Because they changed casts every time. It was sold on story. So they can take their leisurely time knowing that this audience will appreciate 10, 15 minutes with like two people that aren't really that famous to them because they're getting all that sweet story information, man. It's, it's kind of fascinating. You couldn't get away with this in this day and age. People would be like, Got to move faster. When's the rock pop up? People have also like been spoiled too at this point in time, right? Or, you know, in 2020, like you mentioned, that's just how movies are made. Where back in these days, if you watch the original Omen or if you watch The Exorcist or any of those types of movies, they're very slow. Uh, I watched The Thing the other day, still one of the best, but it's it's a slow moving picture. But when it hits, it hits hard. You know, Whore it's of different Babylon, from Babylon, bro. The Whore of Babylon. Whore of Babylon Somebody Babylon has right that sculpture in the real world. I remember somebody telling me, like, oh, that guy has the Whore of Babylon sculpture from, from the Omen. I was like, what? And, of course, they're holding a raven. Oh, there, it's right there. And that's clearly the face of the child yes. we know from, from the first movie. From the Omen. Harvey. I can't remember his last name. I went to a Comic-Con a couple of years ago, and Harvey, uh, who played Damien, was there. And he, he turns out he was a wrestling fan. I was super excited. He signed a poster of the Omen for me. Uh, Get out of like, here, man. So the kid, the original Damien? The original Damien. He's like, can you call my kids for me? They're big fans. I'm like, you're Damien Thorne. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. I don't want you to put a curse on me, dude. <laughs> speaking, me. Of, speaking of curse, like this is the thing. Every time you're watching these movies, like every time somebody might get the word out that this guy's the Antichrist, something like this happens where these guys are now 
trapped in this fucking tunnel and they're going to get trapped by both fucking sides. And of course, the whore of Babylon is going to be uh, buried in the rubble as well. Is this, if I remember correctly, like this happened years ago and then um, the story jumps to where Damien yeah, Thorne yeah. is yeah, a teenager. So this these, scenes after- are, well, these scenes are yeah. happening like after, like right after the end of the first movie. Right, because what you saw, the Antichrist was Harvey Stevens is his name. I just checked. And they saw his picture. So this could be maybe, you know, eight years, 10 years prior, depending how old each character is. But here, here's one of the worst. This ain't no Indiana Jones movie where they're going to, you know, find a hidden fulcrum lever and turn it and they get out. Like these guys are, uh, they're getting buried alive here by the devil. Which, to be fair, you don't really see that in movies anymore. Nobody ever buries anybody alive. It's far more graphic. But these guys are selling it. Like, Leo McKern is making me go, like, what a horrible way to die this would be. He's right. Imagine, imagine the terror that you would feel, like, just knowing that here it comes and there's no way out. Like, Because also, too, we're watching movies. We think someone's going to come and save them. You know, someone's going to come Not in there. these guys, man, because you can't beat the devil. You can't. <laughs> Not until the third movie. So That's right. right here... Uh, the whore of Babylon statue, the Yigal's wall are going to be buried, um, but they'll come to play years later through an excavation. Big, big time, especially the Yigal's wall. Well, actually, the daggers as well, but both of them uh, very prominent in the story. Ed Bugenhag is just praying his ass off right now. He knows he's done. He knows there's no uh, dashing young archaeologist coming to save him. You got to imagine Leo, Leo McKern, a great classical actor. You know, they're like, uh, hey, man, so we're going to bury you with a bunch of sand. And, you know, yeah. she, he looks like he's to be maybe in his 50s at that point. I'm sure he's just like, I don't want to. Okay, so there you go, Kevin. Seven years later, right? So that means Damien, the little boy that we saw at the funeral, plus seven years. So that puts him right now. Yeah, I want, this is one of the greatest reveals of all time. Watch him walk through the fire uh, as the fire burns. And he is revealed. Is that not one of the greatest reveals of all time for the son of Satan right there? Look, I like it, but some people would be like, that's kind of like the rat on the banister at the end of The Departed. It's a little on the nose, <laughs> but I like it. Um, and, and this, I like who it. do you think? Sh- it probably came from that director that everybody's like, he does his job on time. That's a classy shot right there. Unless it's you think shot. it was written in the script, man. Like even the screenwriter was like, we see him through a wall of flame. Uh, here we're meeting the new Thorn family, and so at the end of the Omen, didn't wasn't didn't they say something about the president or something like that? Like they didn't say yes. his his brother Richard Thorn. They kind of inferred that he was the president at the end of Omen, but now he's not. He's just a very high uh, uh, ambassador in, in the government cabinet. He's in charge of like many many things, but he's very political. Uh, and Damien, do they have a line that retcons that at all, or they were just like nobody's going to notice? Mm. That nobody's going to notice. They changed it. One of the terrifying aspects of the Omen at the end was like the the Antichrist is now going to be in the White House. Like, oh no! I, I like how they do this because if you if you follow along through Final Conflict, it's a slow build to where when he finally is, uh, he's in, he's the ambassador to Saint James in uh, in. Um, uh, final conflict, which is he's right underneath the president. So he's building his way up the ladder. And this is kind of a guy that maybe had he lived, sorry, sorry spoiler alert, another 10 years might have been able to run for president. You know, um, Aunt Marion, some folks might recognize as the lady from Beetlejuice, who's like, you don't want to say his name. 
That's like the lady who smokes the cigarettes with the open throat and stuff. I always thought that she was Betty Davis for some reason. I just thought, uh, oh, that's that this Betty lady. Davis. Betty, look at this Betty lady. She, she thinks she's. Look at her. She thinks she's Betty Davis. You were absolutely right. She does, right? She's got a definitely ba- Betty Davis vibe to her. So I did. So she William Holden loves was, Mark, uh, the real son of Bill Holden and and Lee Grant, and she's a big fan of Mark. She does not like Damien at all. She's on to him. Now, let me just yeah. say a quick thing about Mark. Lucas Donat, this is one of the reasons why I love Damien Owen, too, because I just love Mark. I thought he was so cool, good-looking kid, cool hair. Mark got out of <laughs> acting. <laughs> There's Murray. No, that's not Murray. Mark got out of acting, and now he is the CEO of True Car. Now, drive down the 405 towards the airport, Kevin. You're going to see the giant yeah. True Car building. I see it. It's, it's one of the hallmarks of home. When I come home, as I'm driving back to my house, That's I'm right. like, I passed that True Car sign. That means I'm going to be home in 15 minutes. Mark Thorne uh, invented that. He's responsible for it. He's the CEO of True Car. Unbelievable. That is... T- how uh, I mean, it's so weird because some people are like, "Oh man, like wh- what happens if you're not in the movies anymore? Like what happened to you or something like that?" That guy's like, "What happened to me? I I became <laughs> yeah. a multi-millionaire and invented True Car, mother." Uh, first him. of all, there's Murray Murray the limo driver who will come into prominence later. Let me blow your mind even a little bit more, Kevin, as blow a big it. Lucas Donat fan as I am. His mother is Michael Learned. Do you remember that name? Yeah, the from from uh, from uh, the Waltons. Yes, that's his mom. That's Lucas Donat's mom, Michael Learned. Lucas Donat is which one? He's Mark. He plays he's, Mark. He's so a, he's he plays Mr. Mark True and owns Car. True Car. His yeah. mom. Wow, man. Lee so Grant he's got some lineage. had a famous daughter too. Do you remember Dinah Manoff? She was in the yes. Neil Simon movie, I Ought to Be in Pictures, and she was also ah. on uh, that show Empty Nest, I think. That's where I know the name. Richard yeah, Mulligan. That was her mom was Lee Grant. This dude is always in movies. He's worked for years, man. You know, you know who he is, dude. This is Nicholas Pryor. He's Joel's dad from Risky Business. Yes, yes. <laughs> Joel, don't have any parties. <laughs> God, he's been in so many things. Billy William Holden, um, like worked for a long time, and in, 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 like years after, he just worked forever, right? Like he was an SOB. Yeah with Blake Edwards a few years after this. But, like, this is a guy who is Hollywood, man. Like, Sunset Old Boulevard. Old school Hollywood, yeah. Bridge over the on the River Kwai. Like, uh, what is it? Um, one of those, was it the Dirty Dozen? Stalag 17. Sabrina. That's right. Sabrina. He's Bridge Sabrina. Wild Bunch. Wild Bunch. Wild Bunch. Like, this guy lives, breathes cinema. So they score him for this movie. It's a good score, man. Lee Grant is uh at this point she's coming off a of shampoo and a great run of movies uh in the early 70s but she had been on the Hollywood blacklist she started in the 50s then i guess had some like people were like hey man she named names or or she's communist or whatever she was blacklisted for like years and then kind of re- resurged in the late 60s early 70s if i remember correctly yeah. she also like was going to direct a movie with Bruce Willis in it but it fell apart um, something about, I don't know, I forget, I don't know if it was hockey or, bru- or, or boxing or something. This is mm. actually one of the few movies that I remember that actually has hockey in it as well, mm-hmm. which I'm sure must have appealed to you when you saw it. Like, Hey, 
They're fucking well, playing. Well, when we get to that scene, yes, it appealed to me in a big way. But let me just finish up your your sentence. Damien Thorne's adopted parents, right there, are both Oscar winners. Think about that. William Holden and Lee Grant both that's a won great Oscars. Cast. They pulled that's a huge a great cast, cast for this movie. Yeah, um, they did. And and that's think about it. And. In those days, that was like enough to get a movie greenlit. Those two right. old timers who happened to have Oscars and stuff, but they were selling this story more. They were making Damien Omen two with or without these two man, because they were like, "We're printing money with these devil movies, man." So let's keep going. <laughs> like, this devil kid. Warner Brothers had The Exorcist. A few years later, these cats launched Omen, and they were like, "All right, man, we're in the devil business." Like Warner Brothers didn't keep making devil movies. Fox was like. Churn them out. Keep coming. Keep coming. It's kind of smart. Well, yeah, because like you said, because Omen was so huge, and this one was not as big, but to me, it's just as good in a different way. And and, with, and right now, the Oscar winners are uh, consoling each other because Aunt Marion just basically cut a huge promo on Richard Thorne and said that Damien's not right, and her, her your brother tried to kill him. There's something wrong with him. Uh, beware Damien Thorne. And like you said earlier, if anybody starts catching a little bit of a, of a smell that there's something wrong with his kid, look out, baby, because uh, you don't have a, a, a too many scenes left, shall we say. That's the hook of this movie. Years later, when they made a movie called uh, Final Destination, you know, the hook was like, <laughs> one by one, these kids are going to get picked off by death, ultimately. The hook right. of these Omen movies is, like, don't cross the devil because the devil is going to take you out. He knows There's everything. There's the whore of Babylon, man. See, even even uh, Lee Grant there is kind of uh, uh, scared by all of these relics that these guys are finding, but they're bringing them back to the museum because Richard Thorne is a museum owner amongst many other things. And now they're kind of giving you some background plot on what the beast is. And it's almost by, it's portrayed as by accident or, you know, happenstance that it's coming back into their lives. But it's big spoilers down the road. You know, she's revealed to be pretty pro Damien and beyond just like, <laughs> right. I like him, like, you know, part of the tribe, so to speak. So at this point in the movie, do you think she's being seduced or she's already there? Is she a well, disciple of the watch, so to speak, right now? And once again, for, for everyone watching, we're not spoiling anything, but it's all part of the kind of the, the, the canon of Damien. He has he has disciples everywhere. He did in the first movie, Mrs. Blaylock, the uh, of course the maid, and 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 you know all these people that came out of his life. So he has people that are watching over him. So I feel because she's obviously not his first wife. I mean, I don't know, man. Do you think that she gets uh, she gets uh, uh, you know put under his spell, or is she there from the start? I think from the start, she's. I uh, think so too. Yeah, she's. I think a, she's like, been a disciple since the beginning sleeper agent of sorts and she's right. not the one doing any of the you know killing like throughout the movie they portray her as being like what's going on what a right. what a weird happenstance but when push comes to shove she proves herself to be pro damien in a big bad way the raven is like that's their big you know the dog was the last yes. movie they had the dog right right this movie it's all about the raven the raven like every time the raven shows up somebody gonna die it's like the couch on the talking dead, man. Once the Raven's <laughs> in the picture, you know somebody just died in that episode. And what's happening to Aunt Mary? She's just having a heart attack or stroke? She's having, she, well, she, it's a satanic, satanic panic, basically. Satanic she sees the Raven, <laughs> but the Raven is, is casting a spell on her heart. And to be fair, like, you don't necessarily blame Satan for that. Like, somebody left the window open, a bird got in. It didn't even have to be a satanic bird. The woman had a heart attack. She was an older <laughs> woman. Like, 
She was, yeah, exactly. She, she had a lot of cholesterol at dinner earlier. Think about the three deaths we've seen so far. Three old people, two of them dropped sand on them and they drowned in sand. This lady has a heart attack. That was enough back then. Like, you didn't have to That's show right. blood and guts. They were just like, the old lady died. Ooh. Why only other boys and not Damien? I don't understand. Damien has a different cell structure. Different? What does it mean? I've been working on the story for years now. I think I pieced it together. Oh, please, please, you must listen to me. There's something else, too, that you mentioned Jerry Goldsmith, who did the score for this. Amazing uh, when, score. W- yes, when Seltzer left, uh, the producer brought... The first one he brought he brought in was Jerry, Jerry Goldsmith. That's the first guy he brought in uh, when David Seltzer left to make this movie. Because he said the, the music is the secret, much like Jaws. The music is what really gets it over. And when you when we're watching this on subtitles, you'll see random uh, like Latin music plays, and that's where you hear the da, 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 like the really scary that's, uh, kind his of like track, very famous shit. track called Ave yeah. Satani, which for young Catholics like us. Ave Maria was a church song for somebody to be like Ave right. Satani was like, oh my God, you can't get more transgressive <laughs> than that. Look at a young Lance Henriksen. Lance there Henriksen. There he is, that's right. As a young pup, man, long before he'll be Bishop in Aliens, long before he'll be on Millennium, long before he'll do a lot of things. There he is as a young man, also in charge of a young Antichrist. Yes. Also, I feel all of these people from the day they were born were kind of raised knowing that they'd be serving the son of Satan. So this is I th- I th- I'm doing some some uh, hypothesis here, but their overall life has been for this moment to get in these positions to uh, help Damien, a.k.a. the Antichrist, get into where he needs to be to basically take over the world. The movie is, is set in a universe where um, the way people talk about the Illuminati now where they're like, Oh man, I know who controls that. That's the Illuminati man and stuff like that. Um, that's this, this world, the Omen world takes place in a world where there are Satanists everywhere, um, in highest levels of power. And like, not just people who are in like, Oh, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God practicing Satanists who are trying to bring about the antichrist and the end of the world and stuff like that. It does a really good job of creating a tone or a feeling of like, oh, my God, like they're everywhere. Um, in my experience in life, I've not met many, if any, Satanists. Um, maybe some people were like, I'm Wiccan and stuff like that, which is a completely different thing. But right. certainly none who are like, I want to bring the world down. And I work in Hollywood. I mean, we both work in entertainment. <laughs> so you would have imagined we'd encountered Satanist somewhere along the way right somewhere but that being said raised in it like even though like you love watching these movies wasn't it something that truly scared you on a certain level where you're like you know there could be a satanist and they like to sacrifice people the reason why these movies scare me more than well i mean there's there's slashes too but these scare me more than a, than a ghost story for example because this is something that we all know uh could be real you know, at certain point in time, if if you believe anything in the Bible, and it's weird if you uh, we don't get too you know biblical here, but there's a lot of things that you read where it's like, oh my gosh, it's exactly what it said in the story of the Bible. So these movies really struck a chord with me because this could be happening right now, 
and we wouldn't know it. You know, if all the stuff in the Bible is true, which some people believe and other people believe is complete uh, ho- hoey, hooky, hoey, uh, whatever they say. Uh, and I'm not saying I'm on either side, but if you believe in the Bible, this could be uh, real and happening now. Um, and, and, and that's what kind of like, you know, they made it a movie and your friends who weren't Catholic would be like, Oh, I like that movie and stuff. And you'd be like, I like it too, but you gotta be careful because that is what's happening. Like you would start selling this shit as truth to people, even though it was a movie because you were raised in a faith that actually did believe in an antichrist and stuff like that. So, you know, you would talk about these movies with this weird, uh, sort of fear that like, yeah, man, it's not just a movie. That's what's happening. The Antichrist is out there and he has legions working on his behalf because that's the stuff we were raised to believe. I don't, it's not been my experience in the world that that's the case. Like <laughs> in many ways, I miss this more innocent time sure. when the devil and Satanists were the thing that like was my biggest worry in life. Like, what if I encounter a Satanist? Like, now it would be kind of quaint, <laughs> you know. Well, especially when, when you when you re- when you hear like the real concept of Satanism is more like being kind of like you said, like a Wiccan, like just b- being in charge of yourself and it, it, the Anton LaVey theory of what Satanism is. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about devil coming to Earth and taking over everything. And when I was this age group, another reason why reason why this movie resonates with me is I remember when I heard Number of the Beast for the first time by Iron Maiden, I was terrified. Woe right. to you, O Earth and Sea. I remember being at summer camp, like freaking out, how, how, like, oh my gosh, turn this off, turn this off. Because at the time we didn't know what what was out there as you know prepubescent kids, but these images being planted around, you'd be like, what if it's true? What if it's happening? And it, it's, it's also like uh, when you look at these flicks, um, it kind of backed up everything you were fed by your faith with people going, there is a bad guy, the ultimate bad guy. Like there's a reason why star Wars worked so well on children of faith, kids raised in religions, because we had Darth Vader before they had Darth Vader. You know, he was called Satan and he had his own stormtroopers. They were (laughs) Satanists and stuff like that. So, you know, for kids raised in a faith of any kind, where the devil is the bad guy, like having him come to life in movies was, was thrilling because you were like, Oh my God, we, we read about this guy or we're told about this guy every week in church. And that's why it was so strange that like the, the church wasn't like, yeah, go see these movies. They were like, you can't like these movies are against the church. And I'm like, every one of them upholds the first off each one of them adheres to a belief that if there's a devil then god is all powerful and jesus is his son like it really does adhere to the strict tenets of a christian faith if i was the guy in the pulpit of church i would have been like go see the omen movies man it proves me right (laughs) (laughs) look at this group of guys here lou Ayers, uh robert foxworth and uh, alan arbus you got Dr. Kildare. This guy's been in 7,000 movies. Uh, Alan Arbus was one of the regulars on MASH. And Robert Foxworth, he's the, I can't remember what he, he This is, once again, Falcon we can't Crest. say just how he much was, of a Robert, great Robert Falcon Foxworth, Crest. he was on Falcon Crest. He, he was, was the, the lead, male lead on Falcon Crest. Later on, that came after the show. <laughs> this is that guy, Lou Ayers' last movie. 
Like he died. Really? After this. He dies. He dies in the movie. Spoilers. He dies he in died the movie. And after the after movie. the movie, it was his last film. Who's this kid? No the kidding. kid who's like, you're a thorn. Like this kid turns a name into a racial epithet. He comes at these guys so hard for Teddy. being thorns. He's like, you <laughs> thorns. It's it's incredible, man. Teddy's like a super bully, and he just looks like this, look at his hair and like he loves to call him Thorn too. He just like, like I guess like the thorn. way that people hated Kennedys or something. But he he really <laughs> you're a Thorn right? Oh, he's well, just like uh, no, if I'd rather eat a dog's <laughs> dick than talk to a Thorn. Like it's just so <laughs> dripping with bile. But if you look earlier when we earlier in the movie uh, when Lance Henderson addresses Mark, he says just because you're a Thorn. Doesn't mean you get uh, special privileges, but here he is telling Damien, if you're ever afraid and you need advice, day or night, come to me. We're going to get to know each other as we're reading on the screen right now. And Damien uh, is, is he's taking it in stride. He kind of, I think, has a little bit of an inkling that he's not a normal, uh, not a normal kid at this point in time. He's also since since it's the 70s, he's not reacting like, is this guy trying to f me? Like, cause it is a weird scene right. where the guy's like, you know, any problems you have, you come to me, come to my office by yourself. And he's talking to them, talking to the kid in a way that nowadays that kid would go tell their parents, like, I, I think that guy was hitting on me. Like it's yeah. Right. No, no. Look at Teddy, the bully just by his eyes. He's just throwing him around. And what is Teddy seeing? He's seeing an invisible Raven that's trying to attack him. Now, this actor here, this kid is great. His name is Jonathan Scott Taylor, not to be confused with Jonathan Taylor Scott from uh, Home Improvement. Uh, this is an actual British kid who just, he's probably about five foot two, but man, he's creepy to me. He scares the crap out of me even to this day. I think he probably got the job first and foremost because he bears a physical resemblance right. to the kid. Like he does kind of look like the kid. And if you didn't know better, you'd be like, oh, that guy, it's the kid grown up and stuff. But children don't age that fucking fast. So they were looking for somebody <laughs> who looked like the kid. And they found this this kid actor who was in Bugsy Malone. If you ever watched that old kids musical, he was Good in call. the background of. The, yeah, he's in the flick. He'd done a little bit of work, but this was a huge get for him. And naturally, you know, you're like, what happened to him? Uh, Joe Blow dot com they got a, a site a subsite called arrow in the head uh, uh -huh. they did a piece on what where he is and they said doing a little research on the one-time actor there's very little information on his whereabouts it seems that once he left the limelight he left for good there is no record of him taking the usual route of child actors growing up and doing horror conventions or appearing in low-budget horror flicks in 2001 there was an article from the L.A. Times where producer Harvey Bernard, whose name we saw in the credits, uh, offers that, quote, he went into the trucking business in Australia, unquote. He added that he communicates with the guy's mother and father every Christmas, um, yet finding out exactly what, uh, what's his name? Scott. John Jonathan Wood. Scott Taylor. Jonathan Scott Taylor. Finding out exactly what he's up to is damn near impossible. So... From Harvey Bernard, he said he entered the uh, trucking business in Australia. So maybe one day he was just like acting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be like the true car guy, 
move into the trucking. <laughs> I'm the Australian you know true car guy. <laughs> I tell you what, if those guys got together, uh, Jonathan Scott Taylor and Lucas the Knot, and did the comic con- uh, comic cons for a, a year, they would make huge money. Take pictures together, Damian Thorne and Mark Thorne. I would be like, get me, get me, put me in the front of the line. Me too, man. But I'd pay a hundred bucks for that. If those two dudes get together, the amount, the fleet of cars that they own, apparently. <laughs> Trucks, cars of all options. If you're going anywhere, it's in a thorn car. And then somewhere, some bully's like, those thorns. I'd rather eat shit off the bottom of a shoe than talk to a thorn. What if, what if it's all a movie within a movie and it's all a big ploy to where the Thorn Brothers reunite and actually do take over the world? What if they <laughs> and, really and, are the Antichrists? And they're like, we put it right on Front Street. We told you in the <laughs> 70s what was what, but you didn't care. We were, now, we were is hiding this lady, in plain sight. Is this the lady Joan who Hart. was the, the uh, archaeologist? No, she's a reporter that finds out some information. Uh, she's done some digging, and she's now figured out uh, that she knows Bugenhagen and worked through all that system and has figured out that Damien is actually the Antichrist. And she tells uh, Richard Thorne here, uh, you know, much to her uh, uh, bodily harm. Now, let me tell you one thing that's really crazy. Around this time, like I said, 81, 82, when they're playing the movie, I'm 11 or 12, uh, watching in my basement at my parents' house, freaked out already. This lady's name is Joan Hart. My mom's best friend at the time... Cupid doll, if you guess what her name was, Joan Hart. Come on, seriously? So you're like, no way, the omen is happening to me. It's she, real. She made references to events in the omen too. She talked about the photographer who gets his That's head right. cut off. So like David Warner was that guy's the guy's the, totally the great David Warner man. Uh, but there are ties. It's so interesting as a sequel because there's like it really deals in the mythology of a story that they just started a few years ago. Yeah. Two years and, earlier. Yeah. And, and, and goes for it a hundred percent, man. Like that's what drives the narrative is like, you remember shit from the first one. We're moving the ball forward. This, these, these were the days when like you could make a sequel like Rocky two, where, you know, the only thing is, Oh, this time he wins. Like, that's it. Like that's the pitch. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not like a Marvel <laughs> movie where it's just like, Oh my God, next adventure takes the character mm-hmm. in a whole different direction next you know ant-man ant-man and the wasp is a bigger movie than ant-man it's not just like ant-man 2 and you know clearly the avengers got bigger as they went too. and even iron man was just like iron man 2 is kind of closest to an old-timey sequel and as much as like hey it's the next adventure and stuff but this was at a time where you know you could just move the ball forward a little bit but these cats told a story about him being older so they get the best of both worlds, man. And as long as you keep killing people in the movie, you know, people in the 70s are like, I'll go see that. You got to remember, this is a non-bloody horror movie. This is before the dawn of the slasher movie. Mm-hmm. Um, this I can't, I don't know how long this is. Well, I mean, it may be concurrent or a few years after Texas Chainsaw, but Texas Chainsaw mm-hmm. doesn't like bring the slasher movie into the mainstream. Probably Halloween is the movie that brings the slasher movie into the mainstream. Then Friday the 13th right after that and stuff. So this is at a time when horror movies aren't defined by blood and some, but in graphic effects. Um, it's right around the dawn of that. Chainsaw was 74 and Hall- Halloween was 78. This is 78. So you're right. And that's why it's so shocking. Uh, and once again, I think this has been unfairly placed into kind of a, 
B movie, you know, schlocky category. It's not that at all. I, I keep seeing all of these amazing actors with these pedigrees. And, and listen, you know, here we are, gosh, 42 years later watching this. But all of these people have credits. Like if you go on their IMDb's, it's like scroll, 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 scroll. This was not a B horror movie. This was a movie to try and get in back at this time frame, like a, like a Tarantino movie or something along those lines. And this you can was, see this, that. It was a grown-up movie. Like, they weren't marketing this right. movie to kids. It wasn't like, exactly. let's hope the teenagers come in. This was like, you know, they wanted our parents. They wanted my mom and dad to go, like, see yeah, this like flick. If, 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 if uh, 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 Dustin Hoffman, Kramer versus Kramer was sold out, you might want to come check out The Omen 2, and you'd be like, okay, that's not bad. I'll check it out. Now, here's Joan and Hart on the football like, field. Oh, What's that? Especially, like, think about it. Like, the parents are like, oh, we love that omen, right, honey? Remember, we saw that? We'll go see this new one. <laughs> Remember we looked through Chris's hair to find the uh, Mark of the Beast? <laughs> Here, here's another great reveal, though. As you see Joan Hart, who knows who Damien Thorne is, he know, she knows he's the Antichrist. And the moment she's on the field, guess what? So does he. Another great reveal uh, right up there with him walking through the fire. This is the evil version of John Travolta in Greece showing himself for the first time. Helmet comes off, looking right at her. <laughs> oh, <you laughs> <lady>. <laughs> I mean, look, look at him. He's got that cougar hunter look on his face. <laughs> he does. And that's all it was, dude. One look, because she saw Yagail's wall, right? So she's like, oh, my God, that's the picture on Yagail's wall. He looks like the little boy on Yagail's wall. So and then, of course, in horror movie tradition, then she just goes and drives in a very remote area with nobody around for no apparent reason. <laughs> and she's very far away from Damien or demonic influence. And yet she's going to run into some engine troubles like that's what predicates all of this. It's not like the bird flies through the windshield or upper gas tank. Suddenly the car is just going to start up. And when she gets Plunk. out. That's when the demonic bird, devil bird's going to get involved, man. Quote the, the raven, sub- peck her eyes. Never, never more. <laughs> the, the subtitles just went clunk. <laughs> 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 no, here's the thing, too. It's, I almost think that, you know, in, in my world of seeing this probably, I don't know, 30 times is probably real exaggeration, 50 times. Damien possessed her the moment they locked eyes and he said, you're going to drive out. It's almost the Jedi mind trick. You're going to drive out into the middle of nowhere in Illinois and when you get out there, I'm going to make your car break down. And that's just the way it is. And she goes, okay. He has the Jedi, the Jedi mind trick to him. I think you're making your own movie right there, Jericho. I don't buy it. <laughs> you don't <laughs> All buy the it? times I've seen this movie, that never occurred to me. So so what do you think? She just happened to drive in the middle of nowhere? I think I think the implication is the you know, devil f- with her car. And then the devil sends this bird to get her. But the bird don't kill her. So people watching don't be like, this is ridiculous. Um, the bird now, plays a function. Look, that's terrifying. He pecks her. He comes eyes back out. though. It just keeps going. He keeps and, pecking and, like, and she's pecking blind, and pecking. dude. Even if like you know, she, even if she got away with this shit, like you know, even if what he, happens, you know what? I'm I'm coming back again. You know, go, this bird will go and stop. This is and this I'm sure is straight out of like you know, your parents are watching this going, oh, it's like the birds. Remember, honey? Yeah, we saw the birds. This was at no, a time parents- where a bird could be terrifying in a movie. Just in slow It's still mode. terrifying. He just pecked her eyes out. She's blinded. Uh, by the way, from, from behind the scenes, the first scene of the bird flying onto her, that's a pretty smart bird. But then afterwards, I heard it was kind of some kind of a mechanical thing that she was holding on that, f- that flocked his wings or fluttered his wings. 
Now here's this poor blind lady. Uh, she's even lost her shoes. Poor thing. She didn't have any shoes on. She's got no eyes, blood streaming down her face. Her hair has been pulled out. Nothing, to, absolutely nothing to crow about, pun intended. Um, <laughs> there you go. Stop raving, Kevin. She's going to get up uh, and stumble into traffic. So once again, that's terrifying enough. She's got no f-ing eyes. But it's plausible the devil didn't do that. You know what I'm saying? Like at the end of the day, you can't look at it from the outside on autopsy and be like, this motherfucker was killed by Satan. She just got hit by a truck and they probably wouldn't he, even he notice. hides it. It, it, it Kevin, it's, it, you, you know, the, 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 the best thing that Satan ever did was uh, make us believe he's not real. The greatest you know, trick all- the devil ever pulled was, <laughs> <There you go. laughs> uh, I always loved kid. the seasonal shift in this movie. Like uh, how we were just on the roadside, you know, wherever they are in Washington or whatever. And then suddenly we're in snowy terrain. Where are they meant to be? Do they say like, oh, we're going to our other place? Well, the thing is that they're all in Chicago. I think that she left the museum. She she went to find uh, Robert Thorne, Richard Thorne at the museum. Then she split in Illinois. If you've ri- driven from oh, Chicago true. to Joliet, but somehow they're in the snowy area of, uh, of, of, of Illinois. Apparently. The upstate, if you will, or something. <laughs> That's where, right. Where, and still at this point, you're watching the movie and... You know, you're not against Damien. He's actually a pretty cool kid. Uh, he hasn't manifested anything remotely satanic. He's not being the bad guy yet. Uh, you know, and, and if you if you came to see a devil movie, they really haven't spent that much time with the f- devil, if you think about it. Well, Screen no, time? All the setup. No, I also like love the fact, minutes, too. Maybe. And also, too, yeah, it's like Hannibal Lecter. He wins an Oscar for 18 minutes of screen time or whatever. Uh, I love the fact that uh, they're showing that there's a loving family. They're throwing snowballs and they're, they're just Mark's birthday party here, blowing candles. His mom loves him. He's got a nice little precocious bowl cut and all that sort of stuff. And meanwhile, deep down inside, I believe that Damien Thorne knows who he is. I don't think so. I don't buy that. I, I liked my version of this movie. He don't know until he knows. Okay. Let me just do a quick segue. Do you notice that the cake was skaters on ice and the knife cuts the ice and the next character we see is Lou Atherton or Bill Atherton, a.k.a. Lou Ayers. Coincidence? You think that's You think that's in the script or do you think that's the director or do you think that's editing? I've never noticed that before in my life, but I th- they obviously did that on purpose. I noticed that for the first time here with you. That's I pretty say. genius, man. That is smooth. Um, that's look good at this. Like right now... You don't get the impression that, like, you know, it's bad being A, the devil, or B, the devil's stepbrother, you know, or half-brother, or whatever they're going to call <laughs> each other. It's, it's kind of, or cousin. I guess technically it's his cousin, right? Yeah, it's my cousin Mark. Cousin, my cousin Mark, yeah. So, like, so far, it's not too bad. Here's another example. Like, if you don't, he, I guarantee you, if you knew you were the devil, then you might say something. But here's another example of some creepy adult sitting down next to you being like, I'd like to hang out with you some one-on-one time. I'm <laughs> You're right. here You're to right. look out for you. That's crazy. These f- are pedo as shit, man. Like, they come across like total pedo bears. Um, but they're, <laughs> they're, they're disciples of the watch. But he doesn't even know yet, man. Like somebody should have told them, like, don't come at this kid all creepy, man. Like you, you but might here's come the thing, across though. the wrong I, way. I think deep down inside his instinct is telling him this is not creepy. This is just the way it's supposed to Look be. At that that was not- a very homoerotic 
look that they shared right there. It is, but I think the reason why it's not is because he knows this is just his destiny. He can't explain it. He doesn't, he doesn't realize it yet, but deep down he knows there's nothing creepy about this. I, I I'm making my own movie. I think you're filling in a lot of blanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's so weird, though. Like, I never, I've watched this movie forever, and I've never really noticed how many adults have one-on-one conversations with him that would just, like, would be total red flags today. Totally. <laughs> it's so obvious, right? It's so obvious. Like, many cultures have initiation rights, Damien. It'd be like, what the f*** are you talking about? <laughs> I'm just upset. The whole family went outside and left this kid alone with like the older single guy who they don't know that much about and when he talks at the company he's like starvation is good for our bottom line like he's already a little bit off the path man but this is right this is where he starts planting seeds man like the idea that like don't you think you're better than these people and stuff (laughs) now when you look at this guy you're not thinking mike brady I mean, come on. He, he just, has that, a very Brady-esque look about him, doesn't he? That's, that's uh, Robert, uh, what's Brady's name? Robert Johnson. Robert Reed? Robert Reed. It? That's got Robert Reed written all over it right there. All right, so now Mark comes in and f- rescues this kid. If Mark was more observant, Mark would be telling his parents, like, don't, I, he was alone in there with that, with your creepy buddy, and he was telling him how important he was and practically stroking <laughs> his f-ing hair. Keep an eye on this. <laughs> I love the uh, happy birthday, Mark, in fireworks. This is 1978. I don't know where you, what kind of birthday parties you went to, but I never saw uh, giant fireworks spelling out happy birthday to any of my friends. So you can tell these guys are very affluent. I'm not saying that, like, you know, like I live in a pretty nice house and I'm not, I'm not crying poor and stuff, but I ain't rich by any stretch of the imagination. But, you know, we can, we, we, we're good enough where you can waste a buck or two on some ridiculous things. I think once for our daughter, we got a pinata. <laughs> uh, and, you know, maybe, maybe Jen put a few dollar bills in it and shit. And I thought that was, I was like, we're rich. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my God, everyone's going to look at us like we're money bags and shit. We Never hired in my Mr. life was I like, let's bring in the fireworks. <laughs> we hired a Mr. Incredible once whose car broke down and he didn't make it to the, uh, to the movie. Isn't that right, Jess? That's right. Yeah. Come see, come sit over here. Say hi. What up, you? Hi. How are you? <laughs> and look, the She's little brought dog me some ice. Well. So we're watching uh, the uh, the barbecue out here for Mark's birthday party, and it's on the ice. Now, the reason we talked about this earlier is outside uh, hockey rinks is something I grew up in, in Winnipeg, on lakes. And they always say, stay away from the thin ice, the cracked ice, any ice that has water on top of it. It's the number one rule when you live in a cold area is to stay away from the thin ice. So in seeing this movie, were you like, oh, man, like this is even closer to home? Number one, you've got religion in your background, so you're already afraid of the devil. But number two, you're like, people can die on ice. Like this movie gets more and more real. Well, and, my, and my mom's best friend was named Joan Hart. And now they're playing <laughs> hockey on the ice. This was all directed at me. It really was. Somebody was trying to warn you, man. So. As a guy who actually played on frozen ponds and, and stuff like that, how accurate is this scene? Um, it's very accurate. I mean, you just show up, you can see that everyone's there's some guys that aren't really good, and everyone's got their sticks, and they're kind of like you know these are not pros. They're just a bunch of guys that grew up in this weather that learned how to skate, and they're not uh, 
uh, you know, Gretzky's by any stretch of the imagination, but everyone's just kind of playing together. And when the puck goes off the ice, you know, you would stop and think about it and then go Atherton blindly skates. You can see it. That's Lou Atherton. He's like 90 years old, but some, you know, 50 year old stunt man just skating his fat. Oh, ah! no. <laughs> Down he goes. <laughs> Terrifying. No, like number one, you know, you, that's, that's, it's cold and it doesn't look comfortable, but this is the scene that stopped me from ever pursuing a career in the NHL. Um, it's when he's trapped <laughs> under the ice and he's pounding and they're pounding back. Like this is Can a you horrifying imagine? death right here. This is terrible. This is worse than getting buried alive and even worse, for, not even worse, but terrible for the people above the ice as well, trying to crack on down and, of course, the almighty Metallica from their 1984 uh, album, Ride the Lightning, Trapped Under Ice. I would say that James Hetfield must have watched this movie at some point and wrote that song about this. This scene is the best argument for uh, firearms and guns that I've ever seen. Because if anyone had a gun, they could have shot do? the ice and freed Bill Atherton. Well, but well look you at need him. a grenade to blow up the ice. Is that true? Little, like, can you not fire a bullet into the ice? Yeah, but what if you did? It would just be a little hole. If it was thick ice, it's just a little hole, right? This, so you got to shoot the problem a lot of bullets. Is, yeah, see, here he comes up here, and, and he grabs this thing. Bill's got a chance. And poor poor Lou Ayers. I mean, the guy's probably 70. It's not uh, – they're not on a sound stage. <laughs> no. They're doing this in the real world, man. And uh, even if he didn't die after this, it probably might have been his last movie where he's like – this <laughs> get a stunt guy you know how old i am i like is is this a, a crane shot kev or what is that uh, that looks like it's a rack out uh basically they just they didn't move the camera was in one place and they just racked focused out they pulled but they moved back though right no they, oh, that I can, oh i see oh that's all in camera they just kind of do that like a zoom they zoomed in and out gotcha. so it was a zoom that line. was a great shot there it was a great shot. they don't use that a lot nobody likes the zoom that much anymore um, you know, huh. it's considered old timey and shit, but you know, of course it's more beautiful to do a dolly or use a big crane and stuff. But as a seventies kid who grew up watching these movies, I love a good zoom, man. And I love sure. a good snap zoom. Like in Tusk, when we reveal the walrus for the first time, snap zoom that shit hard, man. And like, it feels very seventies. Um, DPs hate it. Like modern DPs. If you're like, give me a snap zoom. They're like, would you f stop? Um, we have to point <laughs> out why. Uh, Bill Atherton had to die because he was countering Robert Foxworthy's character. Now, great quote. Robert F Foxworthy's character's name is Paul Beer. I believe his name is Paul Beer. Uh, uh, Paul, yeah, B-U-H-E-R. He, as you mentioned earlier, and we need to touch on this, he is very much uh, in, uh, in favor of having half the world starve so that Thorn Industries can plant food in other places and, and sell it to them basically correct essentially they had the idea from monsanto before monsanto existed like thorn <laughs> wanted to genetically modify and own crops that they could then sell to hunger starving countries so this guy's whole thing like and if you know your you know your uh your religious history and stuff uh, a famine uh you know war these are the four horsemen of the apocalypse Famine being one of them. So if this guy's like, yeah, famine's good for business, it's almost tantamount to saying, like, of course, he's, he's in favor of the apocalypse. He's trying to bring it right. about. And, of course, uh, Bill Atherton was very much opposed to that. And Atherton 
and Bure were kind of top, top men in the Thorne Company. And so Atherton had to go to leave the door open for, uh, for Paul Bure's evil plan to take place here. That Kids, you want to get in the devil business because there's always... <laughs> room for you know uh like uh expansion uh, there's suddenly you can find yourself advancing with no particular explanation other than obvious satanian stuff like that and it's so weird like how what's the what uh, what minute are we at the movie uh we are at um we are here we're at 51 minutes we've spent maybe maybe in total 10 minutes with Damien, the titular if that, character. If, if that, that, I'd say probably about six and a half to seven minutes. Now here uh, is an, um, this is one of my favorite scenes, not just in this movie, but in movie history. I bet. And this that. is where I co-sign that. So true. This is where Damien, uh, he's screwing around in class and his hotshot teacher, who we also recognize, I believe he's Bill's father from Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Oh, we can Google that later. He goes toe-to-toe with Damien, like, you want to impress me? Uh, tell me some history points. And every kind of, like, you know, what year did, uh, you know, so-and-so invade the Saxons? And he's like, you know, whatever year he says. And they keep going quicker and quicker. And Damien bests him every time. And this is when Damien goes from heel to babyface in wrestling talk. <laughs> he's like, this guy's a cool mother. This, yeah, it, it does. This is every kid in school's fantasy. That you could stand in front of the teacher and do a show off where you're like, I know as much as you, if not more than you and change gears all you want. Like, and it's the one moment in the movie as a young Catholic where I was like, maybe it wouldn't be bad to be the Antichrist. I can be smart. I I don't have to study and I know all these things. I love love being right. Like I love winning an argument. So the idea of being this kid where I'm like, yes, I'd be the son of Satan, but I would be like, I'd win every argument, that's for sure, because I'm the smartest guy in the room. And this, I wonder, do you think he's reading, or did he memorize this list? He memorized it. He, he's a Shakespearean kid. He's from England. You see his pedigree. He's like, everything's dead. 1865, Charles I, 1649, Alva 1658. Like, he knows everything. They, there's a lot of cuts here, so I'm sure Thomas they helped Moore, him with that. They referenced Thomas More, 1530. Thomas More. Uh, is the movie A Man for All Seasons, which Leo McKern, who played Cromwell, who gets Thomas More killed, was uh, in. It's a weird little tie-in with this movie. And Leo and McKern played Bill Atherton, who just died. On no, no, no. He was, Bugen, he was Bugenhagen. Oh, Bugenhagen. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, but but look at him. He bests this guy. He smacks this dude around, man. It's so sexy, this scene. Like, if you love language, this scene is like pornography because it's literally it all the tension is built on not even escalating threats or conversation, dates. It's just predicated on dates, a list of dates. It's like reading a phone book, but you have two actors so good. You have a fantastic score and you have enough tension built in the scene where the simple recitation of dates is one of the most entertaining scenes I've ever seen in a movie in my entire life. The only thing I would have changed in this day and age was I would have done one long shot a la Scorsese or Tarantino and really put these guys to pace. There's no cuts. We're going one take and you're going to get it right. And kids, if a a creepy adult takes you behind a a glass brick wall for a private conversation, like tell your parents. (laughs) Either either he's trying to touch you in weird places or you're the Antichrist. This movie, this movie, it's like it's telegraphing like what would what would be to come like or I guess might have been back then as well. Like 
this this is this guy's grooming this kid like this is unsettling well, to say but, the least. but here's where he's he's revealing the truth uh the sergeant is telling him go to the bible and read revelations chapter 13 and this is you and he's like i don't understand what you're talking about he goes read it you know this is you so now this kid who is on the verge of of of, of puberty we're saying he's probably 12, maybe 13, whatever he may be. He's not very far into puberty if he's not. He's now being told by his sergeant to go read this book and find out what your destiny is. And if that's you or me, it's, I'd be thinking, okay, like, you know, try hard and good things will come or be good to your brother or whatever it may be. That's probably what I'm thinking. I'll tell you right now, they would never make this movie today. And here's why. Because the obvious why? parallel to make with a teenager as <laughs> Satan is that it is hell being a teenager and having right. a teenager. And they never touch on that once. These kids are beloved. Mark and Damien. Like, their parents, like, give them fireworks displays and shit like that. Other than the fact that they send them to military school, they kind of dig these kids and stuff. So it's not like, you know, it's a hellish portrayal or anything like that. So if they were doing it today, you better be sure that it would be, like, some parallel to how it's hell being a teenager or as an adult, like teenage, well, let's be honest. They wouldn't even really tell the story from the adult's point of view. Like the amount of time that we've spent with old people in this movie, that would never happen today. They're like the only reason right. people are going to watch this is the teenagers and stuff. So we'd be spending so much more time with Damien. He probably wouldn't be at military school because who identifies with that? And you need to connect with your audience. So put him in real high school. That's hell on earth. Like make some analogies about that and stuff. They, they didn't go That's that route point. with this. It was very straightforward in as much as now the boy's going to find out he's the devil. And let me just say this too as well. He he's reading the passage that's basically explaining who he is. He's not. He's reading it out loud, and he's got that English accent, which once again he was in England when his father was killed, and we assume he was brought to Chicago when he was five or six. He would not have this much of an English accent at twelve or thirteen. We don't care. Him reading this, uh, let let him once again let him have understanding. Count the number of the beasts for it is the number of men. In the English accent of a, of, a, of a prepubescent boy, it's really creepy. And that's when he realizes right there, holy shit, I'm the Antichrist. And, and, and again, imagine this scene satisfying a modern audience. The big turn in this movie is predicated on him reading a Bible passage and looking at his hairline. Looking at his hair with a mirror, which now would be an iPhone. That would be your iPhone right there. No doubt. Um, and there it is, six, six, six in his hair. And that's when he realizes, oh, my gosh. I'm yeah, but I mean, Antichrist. never once does he stop to think, I go to a military school where I sleep here and these creepy men who keep coming up to me and talking to me, particularly <laughs> this creepy like officer in charge of me, might have just burned that into my scalp in the night. And now he's got me running around thinking I'm the Antichrist. Like, this is, it would never happen this way. This was, like, clearly written for an older audience because they're not really interested in the kid. He's kind of a plot device. It's more I about also, everybody else. That's a great point. That's a great point. I do love this kind of run because if I, you know, it, when things go wrong when you're this age, you know, you get in trouble from your mom for having bad grades or, you know, you blow the big game you find out you're the Antichrist. You just run out of your house and just run for as long as you can. I'll do you one better. I stole this for Dogma, 
Um, really? In Dogma, you know, Bethany finds out that mm. she's, uh, you know, the, the last scion, like, and she runs out through the woods to a body of water and, you know, is unhappy about it. You know, she's like, why? And shit. And it does he, what does he do? Does he bellow? He does. He says, he right says there, why? why? I literally <laughs> stole this. I, I, I literally stole this scene, bro. Why? Why me? Is something Bethany says in Dogma. So clearly this movie made an impact on me. It showed up in my work 20 plus years later. 20 years later. That's fascinating. I just figured that out now. See, and that's what I love. You just figured that out right now after seeing this movie countless times. Uh, we're actually going to pause the movie now, though, in the classic grains and greens tradition. Or is it greens and grains? We'll figure that out later uh, when we start talking about copyrights. We should actually copyright that. Let's do it, man. There's, a, it. I think there's a – I saw a vegan restaurant in New Jersey that had a similar name. It was either greens and grades or grains and greens. But as a you know podcast, as an entertainment concern, doesn't matter. Whichever, whichever one they are, we'll take the other. Um, So we finish with the 666th episode of Talk is Jericho. Let's talk about that real quick, man. The movie. How does it feel to do anything 666? Have you ever had 666 matches as a wrestler? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm about 26 or 2700 at this point. Oh, my God. I I I guess that makes sense. Like you would count. It's been almost 30 years, dude. And I, I actually kept a list of every single match I ever had. And I have, I just actually gave them to a guy who's a big wrestling historian. And I said, this is a one of a kind, uh, you know, volume of, of, of pages. Every match I've ever had in my career is in this. And the ones that I didn't write because I gave up in about 2015, because now you can just Google uh, an information database and you'll find Chris Jericho matches every single one. But for the first 25 years, I have everyone written down. Everyone, everyone, the exact papers from, you know, 30 years ago. So that is awesome, man. And why? Just because you were like, I'm proud. I want to, I want to keep a record. Oh, no, I'll tell you exactly the reason why. When I was in wrestling school, which is similar to film school, which you did, I asked the trainer, how many matches have you had? And he said, well, that's a stupid question. He like proceeded to beat me up. And I was like, well, why is that a stupid question? Because if I want to find out how many hockey games Wayne Gretzky has had, I can go read a book at the time in 1990 you go to the library read the stats book or whatever but you can't do that for wrestling so if no one really knows how many matches they've had i'm going to be the first wrestler who knows every single match he's ever had and wrote them all down and i did so yeah so probably i think i'm not at 3,000 yet but i'm pretty close how awesome that you started doing that despite a guy who was like you're dumb but it's like yeah. why wouldn't you count them all like it's just useful information, but to, uh, but it go going back to the point. Then yes, apparently you have done something more than six hundred and sixty six times. <laughs> How many years? When did you start Talk Is Jericho? Uh, two thousand December second, two thousand thirteen, I believe. So look at you. So seven years yeah. now you've been doing almost this seven stuff. years. Yeah, yeah. My my seven hundred. Like I said, this is six sixty six. So in carry the two in four months, it'll be seven hundred episode when you started did you think you would go this long well i didn't i didn't know i'm not sure when you started podcasting but in 2013 no one really knew what a podcast was so i was just looking to continue i had done a radio show for a couple years where i would interview people on boneyard on xm radio and i was still looking to continue that so when podcast opportunity came up i said well sure i'll do it never realizing you know because you and i are two of the original not originals but we 
you and I came on it at another time. Now everybody's got a podcast. Like, yeah, God yeah. bless you. If you want to do a podcast, do it. We started when it was kind of this still, you know, I remember the first time I went to Adam Carolla's podcast and thought, why am I getting sent to a podcast by my publicist? Isn't this something you do in a basement? Like, what is this? So to be this far down the road and realize how much it's grown, I'm very fortunate that I started when I did mm. and I enjoy doing it. I enjoy hustling and, and uh, you know, taking my little rig with me wherever I go and just having it. Uh, and, and talking to whoever I can and being creative to start watch alongs and the classic album clashes and all of the stuff that we do. So did I think it would go this long? No. Did I not think it was going to go this long? No. Just kind of go with, go with the flow, you know? Uh, you started 2013. Yeah. When did you start? 2007, son, February, 2007. Dude, you're like the first podcaster ever then. I remember who was in the game before me was Louis, Louis Laporte was doing this week in tech. These were because they were charts. Bill Maher had the podcast version of Real Time with Bill Maher was always in the top 10. Happy Tree Friends, which was a video podcast, a cartoon, that was in the top 10. But a lot of it were like, you know, uh, post shows from other shows and some sports and stuff like that. So yeah, like after we, shows, whatever. After yeah. shows and stuff. So when we started, me and Scott started doing pot, doing Smodcast and then. I remember Chris Hardwick getting started and doing Nerdist. Right. I remember when Adam was a radio person and then he left the radio station in LA and started doing the podcast, like, uh, the, it, which was just basically like he took his radio show home and did the Adam Carolla podcast. Uh, I remember when Joe Rogan got into it and asked me, he was like, should I use Fleshlight as a sponsor like you guys did? And I was like, they were great. And <laughs> he had, he, for years, they were sponsored with him. I've seen like a lot of people, Mark Marin. Um, I've, I've watched a lot of people come into the room, man. And it's a, you're right. Now everybody has a podcast. Yeah. And, you know, um, it's great. It's a great democratic medium and stuff. And, and people can, you know, find subjects that they like. There's ad infinitum, ad nauseum versions of podcasts and people you can listen to, uh, authorities, non-authorities, people just sitting around bullshitting, uh, famous people talking to other famous people, sports, go, it goes on and on and on. It's tougher to get noticed nowadays. So yes, you and me got is. lucky because we did, we got some time on our side and stuff, but it's a true testimony like to, like, you know, like I remember when Conan jumped into podcasting, right. like I was like, oh, that makes sense. He figured out the same thing that I figured out and the same thing that you figured out, which is like, I've got a massive audience from this thing. Maybe they'll just come over here, you know? And so right. you, you get something of like an unfair advantage because people are like, oh, I like you in something else. I'll give you a shot here. I don't even think that would help me punch through today. Like no, if I was getting started now. today. Like Justin Long jumped into the podcasting game and he's with a company and a sponsor and stuff like that. And when he jumped into it, I'm like, what? You know, he's a great talker and stuff. But I was like, wow, like you're starting now and stuff. But, you know, Dak Shepard started one and had success. So now a bunch of people are like, hey, man, this podcasting thing. And now that we're all home with the quarantine, now everybody and, and their uncle is just like, oh, I'm going to sit around and talk to my friends and. And do the Zoom version of it and stuff like that. But it's a wonderful medium. Uh, that's not to discourage anyone from 
starting a podcast by all means quite the opposite it's such a fun thing to have no that's what they do it do it you know like you said i would never say don't try it because it is a very fun medium and for me you know i started it um a because i'm a curious person i like talking to people b from a um and you'll get this when you're on set or if you're at a rock and roll festival or if you're wrestling you see your friends hey what's up dude what's going on i gotta go over here you go over there when do you get a chance to sit down and talk with your friends for an hour, two hours, whatever it may be? So and on true. top of that, it's a great way to meet people that you always wanted to meet. Like, hey, look at us. We started because we did each other's podcasts. It's like, wow, this guy's really cool. And, you know, whether it's Kevin Smith or Paul Stanley or Gene Simmons or freaking Larry King or Dennis Miller, whoever it is, you're getting a chance to get through the door and, and talk to some people that you always wanted to talk to. It's true. It's wish fulfillment, man, podcasting. And then if you're, you're really lucky um you could turn it into a business and, as well suddenly it's something that's like have. you know hey man it's my not only is it my passion it's my job yeah exactly all right so we we will continue yes uh, damien omen too over on smodcast uh my uh at my podcast smodcast uh right as soon as you finish this jump over there and there'll be another two hours of an 45 minutes of a movie. That's <laughs> <laughs> what we do, man. Grains and greens or greens and grains, depending what trademark's not taken. Uh, we'll see you. Uh, thank you for joining us on the 666th, uh, sorry, 666th episode of A Talk is Jericho. And we will meet you over on the Smodcast, Kevin Smith Smodcast, in three, two, one. Whoa!